Let's drop the green flag on this episode of The Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. This episode brought to you by the Jesse Combs Foundation as a donation from The Talent Tank and The Pemberton Family. All right, here we go. Welcome back, everyone. Here we are. We are in uh, the the final weeks of KOH Prep 2020. We've got an amazing show today. Somebody who I've wanted uh, on the show for quite some time, and we finally were able to get our schedules to flange up. Here we go. We've got Will Gentile, Heavy Metal Concepts. Will, welcome to the party. Glad to be here, finally. Yeah, right. So a little backstory. When I actually started down this project and throwing this, the ideas around in this project, Will was actually in the top three of people I wanted because everyone seems to know you, Will, or know of you. I should say everyone seems to know of you, Will, but no one knows who the guy is behind the camera, who the guy is behind the edits, who the guy is behind all your huge body of work. We see your work, but we just don't know you. And I wanted to bring that to the forefront. And you said... I said no, That's <laughs> but, right. it was, but it was a soft no, I will add. <laughs> That's exactly how you preface You said, um, I'm not saying no, but I'm just not the guy right now. And then you let me go out and with enough rope to either hang myself or succeed. And I think I've done okay. Enough that you would come on later at a later date. And here we go. We got you. Enough that here I am. <laughs> <laughs> we got you, man. I love it. You know, so we're right now in the holiday season. Everyone is in the KOH prep season and you are no different. You are prepping for KOH yourself in a different form or fashion, right? Yeah, always. I feel like as soon as KOH ends, we're prepping for KOH. It's just, it's a lot like race teams in that way. And, you know, maybe a little less so in some ways and a little more so in other ways, but yeah, we're prepping for KOH now for sure. It's a season. You're such a big piece of the behind the scenes and then the content that we see in the days after the weeks after the months after that kind of get us through and bias the time until the next February to do it again. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We, we at least try to be. <laughs> well, here's my hook. Who is the guy that you would rather cover? Who's the better story guys that run up there in the front pack or the unknown dark horse? Well, that all depends. That's a battle we fought. Uh, you know, since, since the first day I started covering KOH, that's always the question, right? It's like, do you want the grassroots story? where it's the guy that is super relatable and, you know, may not be a front runner, but has a great story. Or is it the, you know, the superstar, the guy that is, you know, in the running, one of the five guys that's going to win it, probably. That's that's the battle we always fight. And truth be told, I still don't have an answer to that. We try to do a little bit of everybody um, the best we can. When we did the movie back when we used to do that, we used to cover um, a little bit of both. One year we did a focus, a heavy focus on some of the more underdogs. And then in other years, you know, we focused on some of the front runners. And either way, we always catch some flack and some praise. So we play that as as middle of the road as we can. But I don't know if there's a right answer. I don't think there is a right answer. I just wanted to hear what you had to say, because I think if you cover the front guy, you know, the, the big names, you know, like the the Campbells or the Lawrence or that within inside that company. Yes, everyone else covers them, too. But then there's the whole rest of the field. And they do have there's some amazing stories out there in the field. But it's it is it's it's hard. I struggle with it myself. So I wanted to hear kind of your professional opinion of what that looks like as well. It's uh, oh, quite quite the conundrum. I'll say some of our best stories have come from some of the one-off uh, little guys that have like a crazy logistical challenge or something that crazy that happened during the race. Like I always go back to, um, I believe it was Curtis Warner at KOH, I can't remember, probably 2010, 2011, 12, somewhere in that little small range. 
when they uh, they drove backwards on course for like 30 miles or I can't remember the number, but they they were so intent on finishing that they literally sat on the hood of their car and steered it. I think he was steering with his foot or something. And they went backwards for God knows how long. And that was such a cool story that we just happened to have GoPros and it happened to play out. They obviously weren't going to win or any of that. But, you know, people remember stuff like that. Or like there was also the story of off kilter. Everyone knows off kilter that was around. And I think it was 2011 or 12, probably 12. And uh, the car that had the dual Hayabusa motors or one Hayabusa motor and a, an IFS front and an IRS from an F-150, just this whole this whole crazy amalgamation of like essentially garbage as far as race car terminology goes and just this hacked together vehicle. But it was such a cool story because it was so relatable that these random guys you know, it wasn't it wasn't like a bolt on Jeep Cherokee, but at the same time, it was as far as race cars went, it was a nothing. But they were at King of the Hammers. They were competing. They lined up at the line. They went to qualify. Stuff like that is so cool to me. And to be able to capture that, that's always a good time. Well, I think that is one thing that's for me is still such the allure of KOH is that anyone can still, if you're willing to throw your hat in the ring, you can still line up with Randy Slauson and Tom Ways and Eric Miller. You can still take take the charge with them, take the field, do battle. You know, maybe you only do battle for the first half mile with them or whatever. But <laughs> nonetheless, that is, uh, I think that is such a cool allure that it's not out of touch. I mean, you can't go get on the field and play, you know, for the NFL. Or step and take pitches from, you know, like Verlander or anybody like right. that. You can't do that. You can't go to NASCAR. You can't line up in the, the top 42 on any given Sunday. But KOH, you still can. Sure. Yeah, even with how competitive it's gotten. And obviously, you know, there's there's a field that's probably going to win it. And there's a field that's probably not going to win it. But like you're saying, that doesn't prevent you from being there and being a part of it. Whereas that may not be attainable in another form of motorsport or like you're saying, professional sports. So I think that's a cool that's a cool balance that KOH has found where it's not so far one direction and not so far the other direction that it's it's still fun. So what we're going to talk about today and why I really roped you in on is that you have covered KOH for Almost since the beginning, you've done the DVDs and been the the go to guy for videography since about 2010. At least that's what I what I remember. That shot's about right. Yeah, you've you've been the guy behind the scenes. Uh, really, I mean, Hammer King put out the DVDs for quite a few years until they just didn't. You know, they just didn't sell. And it makes sense to me. I mean, in today's world, everyone's streaming. I don't have a DVD. I'm not. I don't even have a DVD player anymore. I don't think so. It's technology has moved on beyond that. So we're going to talk about how technology has moved on, how your craft has moved on or even how you got into your craft and roll from there. But first off, you are a Northeast guy. You're Connecticut, born, raised, still live. Connecticut, that's right. Yep. Tell me about the winter in Connecticut. I've never been to Connecticut. Uh, Connecticut winter. Connecticut winter is, like right now it's mild. Winter just started here, but it's about 50 degrees now, which is super rare. But it's it's bitter and cold. We get all the mixes of everything. We get the four seasons full blast. You know, you get your unbelievably humid summers, your freezing winters, and everything in between. So you get a little taste of everything. That almost sounds miserable, but, you know, I live on the <laughs> Gulf Coast. And we don't have it has have it has many moments of misery, but between the misery, there's nowhere better, I think, as far as when our mild temperatures are here, it's the best. Well, I want to come visit you in October. My and my wife wants to do, do that, too. We want to come up there and see the, the leaves change. There's no place I'd rather be in the whole country than in Connecticut, New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine in October. It's lit. I, I skip jobs just to stay here for that time. It's great. And you cranked out some content during that time period, some amazing pictures of some leaf stuff. What was the event that was going on up there, JLX? Yeah, so JLX, which Mel Wade puts on, and uh, Nitto's a sponsor of, that's how I was always involved in the past. 
it's it's like a Jeep rally, and they they it's kind of like an ultimate adventure. It's the best way to describe it. Everyone knows ultimate adventure. I've shot that event for a few years now for Nitto. You know, in different areas, we went to Alaska, we went to kind of like the flyover states area, and they, we did the east, the southeast a little bit. So. This was the first time they were coming northeast, and I didn't work this event, but I went to meet them anyway because, you know, it's not often that the industry comes within 30, 40 miles of my house. That essentially never happens in the last decade, maybe like two or three times ever. So it was cool to see friends and, you know, that I see normally other places that I was able to drive my own Jeep and check that out, my own JL, which is also another rarity that I get to use that at an industry thing. So it was cool. No, that is awesome. I had the conversation just on the phone with like Shannon Welch and she was on it and she just couldn't stop talking about the colors and just spouting off to me like, you've got to come, you've got to go up there sometime and experience it. That event went on like the peak weekend of leaf change. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because I've, I've lived here my whole life and growing up, like I never really cared about that stuff because it was just like, this is just what it is. Like, it's just the leaves change and that's it. And never appreciated it. We always used to make fun of leaf peepers, which is what you call the people that come just for like that weekend, peak weekend. You know, the last last few years or so, I've become more appreciative of it. And my wife and I always travel up north whenever we can. All my buddies and I, almost all our for fun trips are to uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. It's just, it's hard to beat. And you mentioned your wife. We're going to talk about her, Nicole. We're going to talk about her in a little bit. She's an, an amazing individual. But so growing up in Connecticut, now you live just a few miles from where you grew up. You haven't haven't ventured far, but you travel. Nope. Your travel schedule is insane. You're never you're never home. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little strange to be an off-road industry guy that lives in Connecticut because there's no off-road industry here, save for like a couple specialty shops, which we're friends with. Yeah, it's I live outside of the bubble, I like to say, because I go to work. My work commute is to the West Coast. And when I commute back home, I'm home and I'm separate from everything. It's, it's kind of it kind of hurts me and helps at the same time. So it's an interesting mix because once you're at work that you're just you just live inside of that world 100 percent. And then when you leave work, you can kind of have this almost a separate world. So with the positives comes the negative of that. But it's it's an interesting mix of uh, we do have an industry here, but it's just completely different than the West Coast industry. It really sounds like you have a lot in common with uh, Chris Corbett with Nitto that he lives there in you know the Puget Sound area on an island and I think it's Kamano Island. He's nowhere near anything right. really off road and then but you see him at every single event so he gets to disconnect connect. Yeah, him and I talk about that all the time because the Pacific Northwest is kind of similar to the Northeast in that way and and climate and everything. So it we both share that kind of like disconnect as well as connection to our industries that we work in. That's awesome. That's awesome to find commonalities from 3000 miles apart. Right. So growing up, I know that you're not a big sports guy, but I know that your parents are these amazing golfers. Yeah. Hall of Fame level golfers. (laughs) It's a strange fact that, that some of my closer friends know. My father is a lifetime PGA member and my mother is a lifetime LPGA member. And obviously that's how they met. And, uh, yeah, my dad has been playing since the late sixties. And I think he, if I can remember right, he qualified for the PGA tour in 1971, I think it was. So he's been doing that a long time. He's getting older now, but, uh, like he'll play in the senior tour and things like that. But he's had a long career, a lot of awards. And, um, they both, both my parents teach for a living, um, other outside of tournament play. My mother doesn't do tournaments so much anymore, but, um, and neither does my father, but he's won all sorts of stuff. He's played on all different local and national tours. He's in the uh, U.S. Connecticut Golf Association Hall of Fame. He was inducted, you know, about 15 years ago. So it's definitely cool to have that. Yeah, no, that really is. And golf's a lifelong game. I don't play it. I'm, I'm, I mean, I've played it. 
I'm terrible at it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be riding in a golf cart and, you know, there's some uh, cart balls that happen. You know, you pick it up you're like, yeah, I'm not hitting that. I'm just going to, we're going to drive that to the next, next hole. Right. Yeah. I, I took golf up when I was a kid and, and you know, I, I played it because I kind of had to. And uh, I went to the, I used to go to the range when I was like 10 and just hit 200 balls, 300 balls. And just, I'm not bad at golf. But I have too much to live up to to be good enough at golf. So, so it's and when you go out and play with your buddies, it's expected that you're going to be the pro. And when you're not, I get very frustrated with that because I'm very competitive in that sense. So I kind of have signed off of the whole golf thing for my own health. So I love it. I love that story. So where uh, where in that kind of era of growing up, you know, 10, 11, 15, 16, 17, did you get the bug to start? I'm going to say creating content like that you like to video things that you like to that you gravitated towards like the audiophile persona that has carried you on through your professional life. I always have trouble answering that because I guess it was so gradual and so, uh, you know, natural that I never there was never like an aha moment where I was like, I'm going to be this guy. Like a lot of kids, we made films in high school and uh, I used to be big into like military history and military hardware and that sort of thing. So we would, you know, even bef- even before high school, we'd make like army movies and stuff like that as kids. And and when technology got to the point, not that I was born in like the film era or anything, but when things became more attainable to the point where you could get video on your computer and editing in a nonlinear editor, like the thought of being able to film something and then put it on my computer was just crazy to begin with. And I found like, for some reason, I found an interest in being able to like storytell and and create content on my own and put my own spin on it and everything. And YouTube didn't exist then. It, it started right when I left high school, but we used to send each other files and, you know, host files in different places. And it, it grew from that. And then it kind of, it started with my love of Jeeps as well, because I love cars and Jeeps so much that, you know, naturally we ended up filming them when we were out on runs and that sort of thing. And that became a great catalyst to build a portfolio of things we've shot and, and ways to storytell, even if, even on a basic level of my club going out for a run and, uh, you know, to, to Roush Creek or wherever it may be, and just filming that and making a cool video set to music. Like that was always fun to me. So I, I guess that's where it started. It's hard to really pinpoint it, but, uh, yeah. Now, what did you start with? Did you get it like a Sony Handycam for Christmas or... <laughs> We used my we used my friend's mom's Sony Handycam in in high school that we borrowed. It was high end or whatever at the time, but uh, looking back, it was pretty terrible. And what were those like eight millimeter cassettes or nine millimeter cassettes? What are those? I I had I had one too. I couldn't remember. I want to say one of them was Mini DV, and then I eight millimeter cassette sounds right. I actually can't remember that. We'll just go with that one. Yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> But you you started talking about uh, wheeling in there a little bit and getting into, into Jeeps. And I know your home local course, your home local park is Roush, Roush Creek. And yeah. Ultra 4 has been there a handful of times. Not in recent not in recent years. It'd be cool to see them back there, though. They've gone as far east as, like, Kentucky now. Yeah, it's been a long time since Roush has come out this way. Well, I shouldn't say that. They were at AOAA a couple of years ago, which is also in Pennsylvania, close to Roush. But it's been – it's probably been about – Seven, I want to say seven years since King of the Hammers has come to Roush Creek. Yeah, I mean, if you want to dive into that whole thing, that's the the reason that I'm even involved in any of this is KOH coming to Roush Creek. Okay, tell us. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah. So just to start that story, we we started wheeling. I got my I bought my first Jeep off my mother. It was just I still have it actually. It's a green Jeep Cherokee. Um, I've had that for 17 years now. I took that Jeep. We used to wheel at Paragon. Anyone on the East Coast that's gone wheeling knows Paragon Adventure Park in Pennsylvania. Paragon eventually, unfortunately, closed. 
which then brought us to Roush Creek, which was had been around but was smaller. But now that Paragon was gone, which is kind of like the main player, it brought more people to wheel at Roush. And Roush was it, it was it's about an hour from Paragon, so it's all the same thing. And we used to go to Roush all the time to wheel. Like we'd be at Roush three weeks every month, like all summer long. It was to the point of ridiculousness. You know, around the time that King of the Hammers was starting. Obviously, it was its own race. There was no qualifiers or anything at that time. But the first King of the Hammers qualifier that ever happened happened at Roush Creek. And I knew from just watching the KOH stuff that there's no way I could miss this. Like, I have to be there for that. Like, this is my home park. We just drive down for the weekend. We'll check it out. And, you know, of course, I can't just go there and watch. I have to, like, do a thing. So (laughs) we ended up doing a my buddy at the time rented cameras from his college and uh, more professional cameras. And we, we went to Roush and we, I made essentially what amounted to a mini documentary of the race. It was just a mini version of the King of the Hammers movies that came later. And that was kind of our involvement with the RCQ, which was the right coast qualifier at Roush Creek that Dave brought. Oh man. Well, I, we did kind of jump forward, uh, but I'm, I wanted to get it. In. I think it fit in perfectly right there. So as you were growing up and kind of evolving into this, like you said, as you stepped into it, you were, you're wheeling this Jeep, a little bit of an audio file, you're making some things, but you had some other interest and you touched on, you were, you really liked uh, some military history buff. Yeah. Like most kids. Yeah. I mean, just to the next level, like it was before like Call of Duty and all that. So like not everyone knew everything about everything. And like, I just found this huge interest because my father, so my father raised me on, you know, watching History Channel or whatever it may be with World War II documentaries and that sort of thing and, and firearms and that all that, that world all kind of came into one with military hardware. And I just, I was kind of a nerd about it, you know, before high school. And, you know, even, even in elementary school, I loved that stuff like fighter jets and tanks. What kid doesn't, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a point in my life where I can tell you, I could, you showed me the silhouette of a World War II fighter and I'd be like, oh, that was a P-52. Today, I can't do that. Yeah. (laughs) It was so fascinating. And now we have, you know, our kids today have, you know, Band of Brothers and there's, there's just so much history out there that's accessible and available to, to them. Like you're saying, there were no resources at the time for that unless you like made a conscious effort for it. So it was it was a cool like not hat trick, but something to have like to talk about and and know facts about things. I think that's what interested me as a kid. Well, you would have to go to the library and school and class. You would go to the library and you would find you had to find a section. You had to walk out of there with a book. And somehow I gravitated to that as well. Right. And so when I, I saw that you were interested, I was like, you know what? I, that's a great commonality. I think that's such a <laughs> such a such a cool story. Yep. Me personally, World War II buff. I didn't know much anything post you know Korea or Vietnam. Not really good there. But if we talk about World War II, I can get by today. But if you talk to thirteen year old or fourteen year old me, I could talk your ear off about. <laughs> some detail but that brought you into some uh some firearm stuff you uh you're you're a little bit of a gun buff yeah i i'm i'm not i'm not full on like i have some friends that are full on so like it's all relative for me i I love guns and i was raised around guns and and when i was you know eight nine years old i was field stripping 1911s with my father so i'm definitely familiar i was raised around them i have a slew of them and uh, it's it's one of the most important freedoms I think we have. So that's been a, a big part of my politics, of course, as with many in our industry, I'm sure. So, but there to be respected and not feared. Education, education is king. Yeah, I think uh, those of us that are here in the flyover states, when we think about you guys on the coast, on the east or west coast, is the the blue states, the blue counties, the anti two A, and you know, hear hear conversations with you, and you know that you have the exact same 
hey, it's not to be feared. You know, let's uh, you know embrace, educate. It's it's a relieving for me to know that uh, I sit across uh, from you on a Skype day and have so much in common with that <laughs> that viewpoint. I mean, uh, I mean, we we aren't interjecting easy Rick Mooneyham into the conversation. <laughs> we, we haven't gone that far. Uh, right. There's a lot of us here. I mean, it's it's strange. It seems strange that Connecticut is, it's, I'll say that Connecticut is obviously a liberal state, but that's just like anywhere with, you know, it's mostly cities. Like a lot of Connecticut is, you know, agrees with what I just said. And it's, it's not, it seems as though the whole coast and the East Coast goes a certain way, but in reality, probably not so much. So it's it's nice in that sense. Unfortunately, the people who make our laws don't agree with that. So our, our laws are a little less lenient in that capacity, but we make it work. Yeah, I don't want to get off on a, the political tangent, but exactly <laughs> what you said we, that we've seen in Virginia and it's rural, you know, you know, out of 90 some counties, 85 of them have gone to this two way sanctuary status. Yep. And the other ones are just, you know, Richmond. And it's just, I find it very interesting that now uh, the spoon fed somewhat information that we've got from, you know, mainstream media for all these years. And now we're kind of seeing the other side of it and like, wow, you know, there's so many more like us, like minded individuals than uh, than not. Wow. Yeah. Um, let's let, let's get out of the political world. No one wants to listen. To that. <laughs> Plus, we're coming in election year. We're getting lambasted to buy it from all sides from everybody yes. nobody's checking into this show to listen to us talk about politics we'll get out of the weeds right man so right around then you're out uh you're, you're kind of out of high school i think you're out of high school at this point and you sign up to do a contest for the offspring Yes. So my first camera, my first real camera came from a video contest. So I essentially used a crappy camera to get me a better camera. So how that how that uh, played out was the offspring, the band had a video contest on YouTube at the time, which was still, you know, pretty new, not brand new, but still a pretty new platform where that was like a new type of thing. And they had a new song on their record called Hammerhead. And I'm sure anyone from my club, my off-road club that's listening to this right now is cringing beyond belief because everyone in my club, I'll backtrack. So how it worked was you had to win based on voting and views and all that sort of thing. Like there's most liked, there's most viewed. And we made a, I made, I'm so used to saying we, I made a video uh, of all our club trips set to the song in like a sense that was kind of a fast cut edit and all that sort of thing. And everyone in my club must have watched that video like a hundred thousand times each just to to make it win the, the view count. And I eventually won most liked and most viewed, which got me, I think, if I recall, $6,000, which at the time was just unbelievable for, you know, I think I was 20 years old, 21 years old with no money. And I took all that money and I bought a new camera and it was a Canon XHA1. It took mini DV. I still have it just because I'm sentimental like that. But that was the camera that I took my first KOH and to RCQ. And that was what allowed me to start putting out content that wasn't just like, hey, here's a handy cam. So it's kind of a weird story and a, a weird way to get a camera. But with no financial backing, that's kind of how I made it happen. That inflection point is critical. The offspring has a critical inflection point in off-road KOH type media. And wow, no one who would know that? Who would know that story? Now we, we've heard it that because of a band, pretty awesome band uh, because of they hosted a contest meant you getting such a, a critical tool into your arsenal, into your toolbox, and then what you were able to do with it. And then how many millions at this point have uh, been on the receiving end of watching that content that came off of that camera? 
it's definitely strange to like to see how things pinball off of random events and stuff like that. It helped that I loved The Offspring growing up. I still do. And that that opportunity would just happen to come along. And, you know, I was able to capitalize on it in some way, thanks to all my friends. And then I ended up with that camera, which got me another camera, which got me another camera. And here we are. So it's kind of kind of a cool thing. And you're able to build quite a business uh, around it and do something that you love every single day. Yes, sir. So that said, heavy metal concepts. About what year did you decide, you know, where was this, since we're kind of as the the fingers of time come together with going to school, uh, getting your associate's degree in graphic design, recording, just kind of figuring out what you were going to do and what your, say, your, your future projects were and put you on the path that you are today. Kind of how did that gel when you decided, you know what, what I'm doing, I want to do this for... I want to be, I want to do this as a business and you hung your shingle as heavy metal concepts. That's tough. I uh, I'd say well let me start let me start with heavy metal started as a clothing company. Not not with a real business plan, but a buddy of mine actually started the a buddy and me started the company to just sell like whatever shirts, like cool shirts. Like we were like, "Hey, if we can make some money making some shirts like whatever, like novelty tees." That went away quickly because that's a pretty saturated market. We we initially started targeting, first of all, anybody, but we wanted to do automotive and off-road because that was just the world we just lived in and that was easy and we had the access we needed. And uh, started targeting like clubs and that sort of thing because I, I didn't know anything about the industry. I had a Cherokee and I off-roaded and like bought parts, but I didn't know anything about anything. So we just targeted our local market and you know we got some jobs here and there, but nothing too crazy. It was still like a hobby, which it was for a while. Yeah, and then it, once it once people started really getting stoked on what I was editing and putting out there, and I regularly got a good uh, response on the forums because we used to post on Jeep Forum and all that sort of stuff, uh, videos that we had made, and everyone always loved them. And I figured, you know, why not try and make this into a real thing where I can make a buck or maybe make two bucks or three bucks? And and uh, it just it naturally snowballed from there where. I was so young that I could easily dive in two feet first, no problem, with no real risk. And that allowed me to take risks and make mistakes and screw up and succeed and all that stuff that you need to do. And it eventually got to the point where I could make it a real company and register it and everything. And that it all just was a slow snowballing. That's all. It was it was never like a moment where it was like, I'm doing this, I'm going all in, here's this whole plan. There was no plan. Were you working anywhere else kind of started this? Yeah, so I, I I caddied for a little while in golf, of course, and uh, I quit that in a hurry. And I ended up working at a uh, uh, a studio local to me, about 20 minutes from here. And I did I like edited weddings, and I I did all the things I didn't want to do. Uh, I really didn't want to do. And that job actually ended up. I, so that whole company closed when the economy kind of tanked. And that provided me the perfect opportunity where I didn't have to quit. I didn't have to actually make a decision. The job just went away. And I was like, okay, I'll just do this now. And it just, and here I am. So that was about, yeah, we're, I guess we're talking chronologically about, about 2008, 2009. And exactly. you had this uh, body of work, this portfolio. And then you pick up, uh, you start covering Hammer King and being the Hammer King production guy starting in 10. Yeah. So th- th- there, was, there was a whole thing leading into that where 
it all started at Roush at, at the RCQ, like I mentioned earlier. I had I had gotten into that uh, through Bruce Chalice, who owns the park. Um, he's a, he's a, he owns it with someone else, and I basically pitched him with my buddy, just blindly, just emailed him and was like, "Hey, you guys have this cool event going on, which at the time was RC Rocks. That was their rock crawling competition, and he ended up hiring us to film." his events for like a few hundred dollars per event, whatever it was. And I formed a great relationship with Bruce. He's still a very close friend of mine to this day. He provided me the means to build my company in something in like a relevant way at his park where it was like, hey, here's this real event. Here's these real competitors. And here's a real product from that instead of me just going out and making like a whatever video. And eventually that led me to Dave because Dave Cole brought the RCQ to Roush Creek in 2009 for the first ever qualifier. And I ended up meeting Dave there and we did his interview and everything for the RCQ DVD. And, you know, time goes by. We did that for, I did two RCQ movies on my own, just on my own company with a couple buddies. And then after that, Dave approached me at the uh, Nationals race back then, which was in Reno, different place in Reno than before. The, the real stampede, as they say. Right. And, <laughs> and uh, he, he brought me into his hotel room and he was like, how would you like to make our movie? And at the time, it was like that was that was priority one, hundred percent what I wanted to do. Of course, I couldn't tell him that. Don't tell him that now. <laughs> I, I remember at the time, I was like inside, I was like, yes, like finally. And out on the outside, I'm like, yeah, I think we could probably make that work. Let's do it. Right. So, <laughs> I love yeah, it. Yeah, like if I find some time, maybe I can get that going. So yeah, we did that. That's how we got started with Dave. So that was kind of a cool beginnings. Well, and you mentioned earlier, you said, you know, I'm on the East Coast, I'm on the Northeast Coast, you're you're not, I'm removed from the industry, but there's a guy up there in Maryland, well, actually, there's a couple guys, I was, Bigelow is up there, at the time, Bigelow had, he came off a, a pretty good finish in like 2008 or 2009, he, he did pretty good, he was quintessential competitor, and now he's this, you know, professional, uh, he is a <laughs> professional super, real person, professional real person these days, oh, <laughs> oh, Doug Bigelow, Miss Doug, but you also had uh, Eric Miller coming to, coming into his own up there, and I remember in the early years of finding out who Eric Miller was, you and and he were you did a lot of content using Eric, and I remember. And you're going to, have to quote me. If, you're going to, to correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, you were videotaping him. I want to say you're videoing him at. I believe it was Roush. It was a long sweeper. He had uh, he had the ass just fully hung out, pull, fully powering through, and just drifted a little bit too wide on, on the curve and, and, and flipped and you caught it all. Yeah. So I've known Eric for a while now. I met him at Roush through that whole sequence of events I just said before. And uh, he's been a good friend through all this. We sponsored his team, not so much a conventional sponsorship, but when they need something, we do it. Like we do all their wraps and, you know, we've done video work with them before and photos and that sort of thing. And that turn you were talking about. So Roush has a property that's across the street that has uh, what we refer to as, quote, mulch. But everyone knows that that's a very generous term for that. <laughs> and um, he took that sweeping turn and just they dumped over into that mulch and uh, which is essentially just straight up manure and just blew it all in their cockpit. And it was it was the most ridiculous. It was the softest roll at speed ever for the worst possible reason. <laughs> we, we still laugh about that to this day. I remember, I do remember the video is burned in my memory, but that's funny that it was actually kind of something of a manure. That's uh, yeah. know that side of it. And then uh, one of the guys in his group, uh, like Scott Dykeman, you guys are, I probably mispronounced his last name, but you guys are, are close friends from that too, right? Scott is actually the brother of Tim Diekman, who is a racer in King of the Hammers also. He has a shop here uh, on the East Coast in Jersey. And uh, Scott and I have done just 
an absolute assortment of he's not an employee of mine and he's not a camera guy, but he's a close friend that kind of can get a lot of things done and make things happen and, and helps a lot on set. And he's been there since... I think he was there for that day with the role, and he's been there since. So him and I have been from Germany to, you know, to here, to California, to everywhere, just just doing all sorts of stuff. So Is Tim's business Liquid Iron? Yes. Yeah, they, they, they crank out some amazing stuff. His rock racer, you know, race car, Fred. Fred, yeah. Yeah, Tim does great work. He did the Cage My Cherokee, and he's done a bunch of stuff, and everyone trusts him to do all sorts of fabrication. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, his social media, I definitely follow him closely. Uh, but I, I've never met Scott, though, and, and I didn't realize Scott's uh, involvement with you, and that's uh, that's very cool to close that, that loop in. Yeah, Scott is the unknown Diekman, but the very helpful one. <laughs> so you're running your own business. You pick up the KOH movies and somewhere in there you really start getting noticed with uh well i'm i'm actually probably jumping too far ahead i want to jump back a little bit to what makes the creative wheels crank in your head what turns them what where do you turn out ideas and that's where i was going with the eric Eric miller videos you were honing your craft using eric for a lot of content where were you coming up with ideas because you have busted out some stuff like milk run you've busted out you know like we talked about the the jlx stuff there's a ton of those Walk us through some of those. Yeah, so I like to, well, I hope to think that I have kind of a different view of the racing world than a lot of other people. Because when, when I was coming in, there was a lot of, uh, you know, race coverage where it was more like everyone's got the heavy metal music and and more of like a rock theme and, and more like hardcore editing, that sort of thing. And the way I view racing is it has that lens, but it also has like, and I'm sure many people recognize this from my edits, like a big epic feel to it and, and more of a not slow pace, but maybe more more methodical in a sense where, you know, there's this whole story of that whole saying of the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, right? There's a lot that goes into that one sentence. And to capture that and, you know, anything from filming a racer's eyes and their helmet at the start line to, to the finish line when they're standing on top of the car with the flag, it's there's a lot in between there that I like to pick out and, and kind of create a different feel around. And it's kind of hard for me to articulate because I don't have to articulate that often outside of creating it. But something about that just comes naturally as a feel to me where I can pull these scenes out and set them all to this whole mood, if that makes sense. No, I for me it does. And I'll elaborate kind of what I see out of your work as through my lens looking at your work is – there's a lot that goes into between the green flag and the checker flag and there's a and, and leading up to it and post checker but that you capture you've been able to capture not just the visual but you're able to capture the visual emotion and you know that from the emotion side what's going on inside your brain their brain co-driver's brain pit crew bearing uh family watching fans watching that you capture that i don't know the the rise and the fall the ebb and the the ebb and the tide and the of the wins the losses the setbacks the successes and you're able to grasp that so that as the viewer you feel like you're a party to it yeah i've been i feel lucky that people have called that out because as a creator you kind of you have nothing to go on other than just how you feel about something so i'll shoot something a certain way that i haven't before and i put it out there and you hope that somebody takes it the way you meant for it to be taken and when someone does and they say like hey man you capture the perfect emotion on race day like that's such a huge payoff because to me that's everything like anyone anyone can really film cars driving around and being crazy because you know the subject matter is what it is but if you're able to get someone to respond in the exact way that you were hoping they would respond that's there's no better feeling than that and i think koh provides such a good catalyst to that because there's so many different ways to capture 
what's occurring, even though everyone's capturing the same thing, you can kind of craft and mold a story in a certain way, depending on how, you know, how you capture a specific moment different from someone else. And that's not to say my work is better than someone else's. It's just hopefully different. And you continue to hone that and continue to work on that. I just saw just yesterday you released a, a golf cart video. Right. Yeah. When I'm not when I'm not doing something that actually means something, hopefully I'm doing something that is funny. That's what I, how I try to be. Maybe funny. I laughed. I thought it was really good. It was a <laughs> really creative three minutes that I'm glad I spent the three minutes of my life watching it because it made me laugh. It was super kind of not necessarily outside the box, but it was entertaining. And if you go out of the gate with the intent and plan to entertain the masses, but at the same time to work out some little bug or some little idea or some little thought or some little, little project that you have on your own that you can then use next week, next month, six yep. weeks from now on something that we're going to truly see in the field that it actually ends up being paying work. So I like that you never rest on your laurels. You're always pushing to the next level. Yeah, anytime we're not doing something that's like a, an official job or a contract, I try to just do things that are, you know, whether it be a stupid thing or a fun thing or, or something more serious, like I can make mistakes in those situations that don't matter. And then when it comes time for real to do it for, you know, for money for my job, hopefully I won't make that same mistake again. So I, I allow myself to kind of have a safety net around, like for example, that golf cart video is perfect. Like it gives you the freedom to just throw a bunch of crap at the wall and whatever sticks is great. If it doesn't stick, it was funny and no one cares and no one takes it seriously anyway. So, and you learn so many things that are useful even in making something completely useless like that. Like it's just, and granted we didn't spend much time on that, but like even little tricks and stuff that I notice after the fact, I can be like, Oh man, I'm going to, I'm going to do that on my next big edit. Like that's super cool. So it's, it's as useless as it is. It's also some of my useful, most useful work is stuff. I just do on my, in my free time with friends. It's kind of like, it's kind of like what we did in high school, just with a whole lot more equipment now. And cooler equipment. And so let's back into that. So right about that time that you were in a in a room, a hotel room with Dave Cole talking about landing the KOH stuff. Somewhere right in there, you met your now wife, Nicole. Yeah, I met Nicole in just right around then because she helped me at the start with just about everything. I met her in, oh man, hopefully she doesn't get angry when she hears this, 2008, I think. Yeah, pretty sure 2008. Yeah. And uh, we started dating in 2009. Yeah, she's been there from the start, really from exactly the start, because she jumped in right when my other job closed. And she rode the train with me all the way to here with my company from highs and lows and from printing DVDs in the attic of my mother's house to, you know, in our own home now, uh, you know, doing what we need to do. It's been a fun ride. So you guys have been together a little over 10 years, and but you haven't been married that long. You're almost newlyweds still. We've been married a year, just about a little over a year, a little over a year, just slightly out of it. And <laughs> as far as like racing and racing video goes and your coverage, she was she's there for everything. Like, yes. it seems like almost everything. Yes. I, it's a cliche that everyone always says that like, oh, I couldn't do it without my wife. But I literally probably couldn't have done this. Like I could have done a little bit of it, but definitely not the majority of it without her, because, you know, whether it's whether she's directly helping me being at the event, helping me film, which has happened or, you know, handling logistics or whether it be just doing other things that allow me to do this, whether it's something as small as taking out the garbage or something as large as whatever it may be. She provides me the means to be able to dedicate so much time to my craft. I saw a video, I believe it, it might have been produced by you, but it was basically people setting the hooks on different people that have participated in your coverage. And it was like, for instance, Lauren Healy. And the question, the hook was, who do you prefer, Will or Nicole? 
Yes, I do remember that. I actually forgot about that till now. But yes, that was me. <laughs> and everyone, the overwhelming majority was like, Nicole, Nicole. Yes. I think the only one that chose me was my boy, Tom Wiz. Shout out to Tom. <laughs> Tom saw through the BS and knew that you were going to be editing it. Was right. Like, oh, He's, uh. He knows the back end. Yeah, he cut through it. Uh, Tom's such a great guy. But yeah, I, I saw it. I was like, man, these you guys just had this uh, this jive that when you can you know, find someone in your life and parallel with them and bounce off each other and their strengths are become your strengths and your weaknesses uh, combined, you can X them out. It's just, I, I think that's phenomenal. But it sounds like, you know, from my knowledge of you and Nicole, she's killing it for you. Absolutely. She used to come to all the events you know, when she had more vacation time with a different job. Yeah, she she was at all the King of the Hammers until the last few, and she would handle all of our logistics with the RV and, you know, with anything from GoPros and where they were going and when they were going to garage numbers and, and organizing all the interview questions that I set up. And she was a big part of the whole machine. Like, and she still is, just in different ways. So without her, it's, you know, like I said, a cliche, but it's true. Without her, I, you know, I wouldn't be able to do this. And she's a big professional career woman. She works for 3M, has a killer resume of her own, stands on her own. Her work speaks, you know, and she's, you know, her stature speaks uh, heavy volumes without being someone who's even a party to Will Gentile's life. Right. Even if I wasn't here, she would still be the boss and killing it. And I would just be, you know, making handicam videos somewhere. So, yeah, she's she's a supervisor at 3M. She has a great job and um, she's been getting promoted like crazy and she's super valuable there at her company. And she she has a full time job and then some and still, you know, like I mentioned, does all the things. Comes home and takes care of you. Yeah. I mean, she sounds a lot like my wife. So that's, uh, I, I'm also drawing the parallels, the, the, the parallels <laughs> there. So, man, so being your own business owner and being in the genre of business that you are in, what are the perils? The perils are, you know, you, you never know how much money you're going to make, if you're going to make money at all. Just all business owners can relate to the same thing, right? It's just there's always this uncertainty. And someone told me, or at least I saw a quote once that if you ever stop being scared of that, you're in trouble because that's it's almost a fear driven business in the, not the sense that I'm just constantly worried. But I know that if I don't do this thing or if I don't get out of bed this day or if I don't close this thing, then it's just not going to happen. And that's not necessarily all a bad thing either, because I enjoy that kind of challenge to some degree. It'd be nice to just get a check all the time. But at the same time, like. Maybe I don't want to do that thing that gets me that check, right? So you can you can craft your own way, and there's positives and negatives to the whole thing, but the biggest peril is just the uncertainty of always having to be on top of things or else the things won't be there. Well, I think that's, you know, the, the two mindsets that are out there in society today. There is the, I'm going to work for a company for 40 years of my life, and I'm going to do what they tell me to do. And then you have the other side of the, the, the house. I don't know if it's, I don't think it's a 50-50 split. I think it's more like a 90-10 split. And that 10% is out there chugging every day, exactly like you said. They're, I'm, I'm hungry, I'm aggressive, and I know I'm capable. Yes. And I, I, ha I hate seeing people complain about being a small business owner. Because, yeah, it has a lot of lows, but man, the highs are hard to hard to match, at least in anything I've experienced. Like when you're I wake up every morning and I love my job because I can maybe I'll get an email that day that I've been really working hard to get a response on or there'll be a new opportunity. Any day can be the biggest opportunity ever. And I think that's kind of a cool experience to have. Whereas where you're more not that there's anything wrong with a normal job. I've had that, too. But just the feeling of waking up and knowing today could be the day. This is this might be the big day that changes everything. I I've had a few of those days. So that's a good feeling. 
No, I think uh, when you're working for, let's say, working for someone else and you don't have made the entrepreneurial spirit, spirit on that day, it, you kind of fall into, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say it's a regression, but I want to say it's a, and not a rut. That's not the right set of words I want to say. It's just you have this standard and it's more flatline there. The, the, the highs are lower and the lows aren't as low. It's not as swing, swingy. Is that a word? A swingy word? I'm going to use, use swingy. <laughs> They're just, they're just not. And then you've got guys who, like yourself or many of the people that end up in, that I've had on this show and end up in uh, in the driver's seat. Man, just the challenges that they have taken on headfirst in, uh, in the world are just, I don't know, inspiring to me. Like what you do in- inspires me. What a lot of these guys do inspires me. So I think, uh, I think that speaks volumes. You have to love the extremes, that's for sure. And not to say I love the low extremes. I've had some pretty bad days as a business owner, for sure. And, you know, just managing relationships and managing failures and stuff like that is never fun. But like I was saying earlier with those small projects, like if you make a mistake and you suffer from it, you'll never make that mistake ever again. So it's everything is by design, just a learning point, right? So it's it's fun to work out. You just hit it right there. That's the exact thing that needs to be said. Failure is going to happen. It's absolutely going to happen. It's how you deal with that failure and then how you take that failure forward. Because everyone that's successful, you just didn't get successful on day one. It just didn't happen. The first thing you set out, uh, you, the first thing you set out to do as you left the house that day was just to be successful that day. Well, some days that does work out, but other days it doesn't. Right. And it's what mentally how you prepare yourself and mentally how you handle yourself after that failure. 100%. It's, it's like I said, the highs and the lows are extreme, but the, the highs of the highs make the lows go away in a hurry. So it's, a, it's, it's an okay trade for me. So I want to jump into like when we kind of started down the path and I got us tangently way off, but like your talent, you know, ideas, brainstorming, then your execution. And you said something to me, and I'm not sure if it was uh, verbally or if it was via text, but something about uh, talent doesn't carry you all the way. You still have to put in the hard work. What for everybody else, what exactly you said and what you meant by that. Yeah. So I, I feel like when you do what I do or what anyone that I does do, um, you're kind of born with that in a sense where you have a, you, you by design have a certain eye for creativity and that sort of thing. And, and with that comes a default talent that you have to build and hone and you don't come out with all the talent, but you build on that talent. But one of the hardest lessons I learned was that talent is only like a small piece of the whole puzzle, at least in the business world, where, you know, I spent a long, 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 long time honing my talent and craft, just like anybody should. But I relied on that too heavily to be my only tool, where it was like, hey, I'm really good at this thing, and hopefully people use me. Like, that sounds great when you're 20, and like, some things are working out, but in the long run, that doesn't really play out. I've found you need to have, you know, relationships with people and make connections and be different places and be visible. And, and there's so much more to success than just having talent. You know, I, I'm not the most talented videographer. I don't do the best videos on earth, but you know, they're pretty good, but not, that's not good enough to be the only thing I do. So it, it sounds like an obvious thing, but having, if I could go back, it would be to spend the same amount on the talent, but also cultivate kind of, you know, relationships with people in the industry and, and almost, I hate, I hate the term brand, but some kind of brand of myself where I'm more than just, Hey, I make cool videos. So if that makes sense. 
No, it absolutely does. I really enjoy the niche that you have found and that you're, you know, it's pretty envious that you were able to take something, two things that you're very passionate about and blend them together. And that really came to my forefront of thought when I started putting together this interview with you was looking at, you know, it doesn't necessarily follow the the path of everyone's, you know, sidelight, you know, their life and what they have going on with their family, kids, how they grew up. And then they have their separate racing side. Yours was we talk through it, the chronology of you is like everything is so tightly wound all the way from your childhood all the way through today with off-road and videos and content creation and where you've gotten, I guess, mentally having just uh, exchanging just messages with you about this. I found myself really impressed with how in touch and in tune you were to ideas. It wasn't just uh, off the cuff stuff. It was, you could tell that you're mentally are in kind of a different place all the time. Yeah, I think you probably that's probably fair to say. It you kind of have to be though, right? Oh no, yeah, you're you're subject matter expert. Right. And you have to live in the world that you work, at least with what I do. Like it's hard it would be hard for me to to go do a video for like a perfume company or something cuz I just I, A I don't care and B I don't know anything about it. So it's hard at least for me, I need to naturally be able to attach to that and care about it and be passionate about it. And with off-roading cars, that's so easy because I just love those things. I'm surrounded by them at all times. And, you know, just by the nature of that, ideas will come to me or things even as simple as things I just want to do. It's like, okay, let's just activate on that. And it, it just comes naturally. It's very, very fascinating. Like I said, you are a subject matter expert in your, your niche field. I'd ask you about perils of being a business owner in your, in your genre. And one of those things that I'm going to bring up is the exposure bucks effect. <laughs> My favorite effect. Your favorite effect. And I think that that kind of goes hand in hand with, uh, I don't know if you probably have better words for this, but I'm going to call it theft of services. For yep. photographers and videographers, theft, theft of services is what I, what I, I think that's the right word that I want to use. Is that what you would right phrase? That's, that's as straight up as you could be for sure. Cause that's what it is a lot of the time. So, you know, on social media, it's referred to as freebooting. That's another term that is good for that. Freebooting. I haven't heard that. That's perfect. Freebooting is basically when, uh, for example, like a memes page or a, uh, maybe not a memes page, but like a repost page. It's kind of hard to explain what they are, but I'm sure you know where it's a page that doesn't create content. It just gathers content from all over the web and puts it out there, which isn't always bad, but it's, it's just, it's taking someone else's content and using it for monetary value without their input or permission or paying them or anything. So basically uh drudge but or huffpo but for in our case or in your case off-road automotive yeah yeah it's a battle like like i said it's not all bad i mean there's some there's some good to be found in that but from a baseline perspective it hurts uh creatives photographers videographers and it's tough to tough to battle because at the same time that helps Instagram and Facebook, for example, their bottom line, you know, the more engagement and the more stuff out there, the better for them. So they're walking a line where it's like, hey, we we kind of care and we'll kind of police it. But at the same time, we kind of won't and let it happen for a little while. I don't think they care at all. Right. Personally, and I flip through the the photo album in my phone. It's a ton of you know, like the right click save as. I mean, it's like, and they make it so easy. It's one button to save image, right. save image, and it's always like, well, he did this this way, and it's a you know, let's say from a fabrication perspective, I see a picture of something that maybe Jesse Haynes did, and I'm like, that's genius. I need to think about that, and I'll save it. 
Uh, <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll come back to it, you know, a year later, I'm scrolling through my phone, and I'll say, I'm like, oh, man, that really was cool. I wonder what happened to that, and then find out it didn't work out. But, or it worked out immensely, and we've we've pivoted and changed. But I've seen a lot of those things out of you where you've had, you know, when we talked about the JLX and the beautiful uh, leaves turning in October, you had some content that came out around that time that I was just, they were so picturesque and so beautiful. And then the other shoe dropped. Jeep reaches out to you, and they have this, they must have an automated bot yeah. that just, <laughs> just just goes and hits Will Gentile on a regular basis. And <laughs> tell us about that. It's just, it, I want to say in advance, like that doesn't necessarily make me upset just because I know the context of it all. They're whole, what they, the whole scenario there is there's likely a social media ad agency that has the account and their job is to find Jeep content and ask for permission to use it. They do ask for permission and it doesn't matter who you are. Like they don't, the context is that they don't know that I'm a professional in any way. So I'm not insulted by that because they're reaching out to everybody. They're, they reach, they message a thousand people and hope 20 say yes or a hundred say yes or whatever it may be. And it's just a numbers game. It would be a lot different if like, for example, if Jeep, like someone at fca.us.com reached out to me and were asking me for free content, that would be a whole different ball game. It even says in their message on Instagram, we will not pay you any money. You will only get internet likes. <laughs> and it's, I don't necessarily expect everyone to care to the level I do because that's my livelihood. And, and frankly, people shouldn't care that much because it just, it really doesn't affect how the world turns. But when we've broken social media down to that point, it makes it difficult for sometimes in some instances, professionals to get that work or to, you know, make that connection because crowdsourcing is a thing and it's, it's effective, right? There's, there's people that don't do this for a living that take good pictures or take good videos. And that's great. But you know, it all depends on how the company that's approaching it wants to handle it. I think you're spot on. I mean, it does erode away at your value, but on the flip side of that, that same coin, it, it's also part of that even bad exposure is good exposure or whatever that equals uh, your stuff getting out there. But you've had some viral stuff. You've really had some stuff that, that even offhandedly went viral that I don't think you planned on or plotted on. It was a project that you thought, hey, you know, I'm going to mess around. And yeah, I'm watching you laugh right here. You know where I'm going. You you have a drone, right? You do you do quite a bit of drone work. And yep. you uh, you took that drone after just some lowly hornets. I mean, these hornets were just trying to exist in life. You took, you videoed mul multiple angles nonetheless. It was very professional production uh, <laughs> going after a, a hornet nest with a drone. Yeah, there was a bald-faced hornet nest just on the eve of my house, just here in Connecticut. And I, I set up a camera on a tripod and I was like, I'll film this, show my buddies. Cause like we always joke about this sort of thing. I just, I flew the, it was a Mavic pro and I basically just threaded the needle and eventually eroded away their nest and killed all the, the hornets because, you know, I was going to kill them anyway. I may as well have a good time. Right. Yeah. I, I just posted it just as like literally a nothing. I had no intention of like going viral or whatever. And it just went nuts. And like, I, I always joke with my buddies, like my life's work is professional video production and just crafting images and flying all over the place. And all I had to do was go in my backyard with my A7 and just film killing bees with my drone and not even film with the drone. It's just, it was the dumbest thing, but it went viral. Of the light counter view counter that you had reached to that you have access to, what was your reach on that? 30 million? Going back to freebooting, I mean, it was stolen countless times and there was millions on that. So, you know, over 10 million people have seen the corner of the outside of my house. So, <laughs> right. Which I think funny. Let's circle all the way back to when I interviewed Lauren a few months ago, us talking about Milk Run. 
And you guys, you and Lauren and a couple other guys were sitting around, and I don't remember what Lauren said. That you guys were sharing a video, and you're like, hey, look at this video, how stupid this is. And this guy got, whatever, 10 million views across YouTube. And you're like, man, if that's all we needed to do, let's do that. And so it's like, Lauren's like, okay. I'm okay with let's let's mow down my garage door if it means we can get, go get, go viral here and that yeah. milk milk run video was born out of that. Yeah, milk run that was such a good time because it was such an organic natural thing where we didn't go into it with any real like as usual no plan no real expectations and. Uh, Lauren, Chris Corbett from Nitto and I all kind of uh, brainstormed the whole thing to the degree we did, which wasn't that much. It, it started out as just Lauren, uh, myself, Spencer Clements, who's my drone operator, and Zach Crosby. We were out in Moab and we were like, let's just film some dumb stuff. Like, let's just go do like some cool social media clips or whatever, because we always shot with Lauren and we're good friends with him. And um, he was down like he always is. We kept doing more and more things to the point where it got to like, man, we're doing some exceptionally stupid things. Like maybe we should make this into a real thing. And uh, it, so we shot all those first pieces of Moab, including the jump down potato salad. And we were like, man, we really need to cap this off with something like, I know that well, everything we just did is crazy, but something's got to be just relatable, but stupid at the same time. And so together. Yeah. And tie it together in some semblance of something that makes sense. So a few months passed, like five months or something. And speaking of JLX, we were on JKX with Mel Wade and Lauren was there and Spence was there and myself. And from there we went, we drove from Moab to Lauren's house and his his wife, Savannah, was in Disney, I believe, on vacation. The time was right. And we were like, Lauren was like, I'm just going to crash through my garage door. And I was like, OK, I'll uh, I'll push record and we'll see what happens. So he we had this whole scheme where, you know, we were going to we were going to burn out his garage, but we couldn't keep the car in place. And we we had to do all these crazy things we had for this garage scene. We actually had uh, Casey and a bunch of his guys in the garage holding the car with a rope so that he could kind of burn out, but not move around too much and like break stuff in the garage and get too crazy. We basically called it and they would run out of the room and then the garage door would get blown out and smoke would follow him. And it was this whole it seemed like a complicated plan but it was kind of seat of our pants like we get one shot at it, let's just do it type thing and thank god it broke the way it did and and no one got hurt we didn't like alert any neighbors or anything he lives in a pretty <laughs> pretty close neighborhood where like everything's on top of each other we only had one yelling neighbor that day yeah that i mean as simple as it was it was so like who hasn't wanted to do that type of craziness right and everyone can relate to that so i think that's why people were stoked on it are we going to see more stuff like that coming from you anytime in the near future I sure hope so. We've been talking about it for a long time. And like with anything, the planets have to align in a certain way. And there's got to be money and plans and schedules. And the schedule thing is the toughest part because, you know, we've got all our random work and Lauren has a race schedule. And so we'll see where it goes. But I sure hope so. Oh, not I didn't mean with Lauren. I mean, with anybody like uh, I, I really like how you've been able to keep it fresh and you continue to show up with fresh ideas and fresh takes and fresh angles. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. I mean, automotive viral videos like everyone's doing them now to some degree. And you can only really do so much without it being what someone else has done. So that's why I default to Milk Run, because I think that's like our own little our little cutout that's already established. And, you know, there's a lot of things that you can make happen there. But like as far as other videos like that, not so much for me, I don't think. Okay. All right. You did Alaska with those guys. So that was a job I did for Nitto. And we I've actually been there three times with them. One was for a JKX event and the other two were for an Alcan 5000. And for people not familiar with that, that's a, a traditional rally, not like a rally race with rally cars, but like a timed stage rally. And 
all sorts of vintage vehicles, anything from like a stock, uh, like Subaru, all the way up to, you know, one of our lifted JLs or a vintage. For example, last time, one of the participants, Carl, had a GT350H. And anyone that knows what one of those is, it's one of the rare uh, GT350s from back in the day that Hertz Rent-A-Car had. And there, there's only like a hundred of them or something. But this car was worth, you know, untold amount of money. And he was just blasting it on dirt roads in Alaska. And that's kind of what the Alcan is. People from all over get together and it's an excuse to go somewhere cool for a reason. So that's that was two of the three reasons we were in Alaska. And what was that, like August? Yeah, we just did we did the summer Alcan. And before that, we did the winter Alcan. Holy crap, winter in Alaska. That, is, yep. that doesn't sound fun. That doesn't sound pleasant. <laughs> and that was, I believe, I think that was my first time there was the winter time, almost positive. So that was an eye opener for sure. We got lucky with, I don't want to sound like too much of a hero because it was kind of a mild year. But uh, I mean, we, we experienced some craziness and some crazy temperatures and icing. And I mean, we went in the Arctic Circle in winter. So, you know, with that comes all the craziness. I want to go. I, I I really want to go to Alaska. That sounds like a, a good segue into getting there. All right. We're going to jump. We're going to jump right now. Now a message from our sponsor of this episode, the Jesse Combs Foundation. And today we have Vanessa Clock on with us. She's a representative of JCF, and she's here to talk to us today about a couple things. One, her involvement and what the JCF means to her, and two, what opportunities they have. I think we've heard that in the past a few things, but she's going to nail down some details for us. And then three, she's going to talk about some of the opportunities that they are exploring for using uh, the donations for uh, furthering the Jesse Combs Foundation cause. Vanessa, how are you? I'm good, Wyatt. How about yourself? Enjoying it, loving it. Tick tock, tick tock as we count down the clock to uh, King of the Hammers. Indeed. Uh, I know it's getting a, a little nerve wracking for some people. So I'm anxious to go, which is exciting. I know that was a big thing for Jesse, and she always kind of banged that drum. And I'm excited to go and see what's going on down there. Unfortunately, in the past, I've not had the opportunity. So it should be a fun experience. It is a wonderful place to go. You guys will fit in perfectly and love it. So, Vanessa, what is your involvement with JCF? So I am actually the treasurer and secretary of the foundation. I kind of got selected. That's my heart and soul. I do accounting. So that's kind of how I got thrown into that. And I'm also one of those people that keeps every email. So <laughs> it was an easy selection for those people who have dealt with me before. Kind of got involved. I'm a good friend of Jesse's. We've been friends for years. I think I met her back in 2012 when I worked with another company and she actually bought a oil bracket for her Triumph motorcycle. So that was pretty exciting for me to actually get to meet her and hang out and see her shop and all that. So one of those experiences that you kind of don't forget. And her and I stayed in touch ever since. And here we are. And a relationship was formed. Part of what we were doing and how I got involved with this foundation is Jesse actually kind of mapped it out for a lot of us, which was pretty awesome. And it was something that she has spoken to me and my husband about on the regular basis saying, you know, how, how she wanted this idea to come to fruition. So it was really exciting to see that and know and be a part of that bef before this actually happened. And so unfortunately with her passing, a lot of us knew what was, what that meant, you know, and it meant, Hey, this is something that she wanted. And now it was our turn to carry it out. Cause I feel like that's such a rarity that we actually have realized and recognize our mortality. Yeah, she definitely was not afraid of that. So she knew going in and she was content with that. And that's, you know, most people aren't. And so it's great that she was. I think that's a testament to her strength as a human. She's just a good human. Absolutely. So Vanessa, today you're going to talk to us a little bit about uh, the details for uh, the Jesse Combs Foundation Raceathon. That is an opportunity that's coming up at King of the Hammers. To paraphrase, you guys have opportunities to get behind every single driver that is registered to race any class at King of the Hammers. Is that correct? 
That is correct. So the way that it's pretty much set up at this current time, so we have, it's the JCF Raceathon. We're going to be doing, it's out on the lake bed. You can find us out there. We have our own vendor booth. You're allowed to make a pledge. We're asking for a minimum of 50 cents a mile. There is no maximum. So if you're feeling super generous, bust out. We're happy to accept. We have some great plans for those funds. Uh, You can actually pick your favorite racer. You can pick multiple racers. You're not limited to anything. So whether that's UTV, the 4600 stock class, 4800 Legends, et cetera, 4800, anything that you want, we want you to go ahead and pledge. This is makes it so much fun because now I kind of compare it to my daughter's jogathon. It's fun to watch people go and you get to see them reach their goal because every driver in this case has their goal. Everybody wants to finish. So you can kind of gauge what your commitment is going to be at some point. It's awesome. It'll be a fun experience for everybody. So if I am walking into Hammertown, I walk into the vendor area there near the big screen in the main stage, I'll be able to find the Jesse Combs Foundation booth and be able to plop down, fill out a form that has the space for me to pick my driver, pick the class, and the dollar amount I'm willing to donate per mile. Absolutely. And there's also the option, we want to make sure that people know you're not, you don't have to do a per mile if you don't want to. If you kind of have limitations, you can just make a set donation amount as well. We're not, you know, we don't want to exclude anybody or make anybody feel like they have to overcommit. Again, anything is welcome. So if anyone stops by and they have 20 bucks and they're like, hey, I, I want to donate 20 bucks to the JCF, there will be provisions there for them to knock that out, right? Absolutely. Oh, I love it. I love it. And then you guys are going to be set up to take uh, donations via credit card there and PayPal. Yep. So any any type of donation is welcome. Cash, credit card. We do PayPal. Pretty much anything we do on our website as well is always through PayPal for secure transactions. Some people have asked about Venmo. That's an option. Obviously, we'd kind of prefer to deviate away from that. But if, if that's what works for you, I mean, we're happy to accommodate again, however we need to. We've had people drop off checks. It, it just depends. Whatever works for you works for us. I love it. We'll make it easy. We'll make it simple. And thank you for donating. The second opportunity that you guys have going, and Matt Howell had alluded to this and kind of dropped some information on it, but uh, Bart Dixon, who's an OG 13 racer, he's donated his spot to the JCF to use to auction off for the proceeds to go to the JCF. Tell me some details about that and how that's going to go down and the mechanics of that. So we are planning to do an eBay style auction. It'll be announced on social media. We're going to run it for about three days. So the plan is here to start this coming Tuesday and which I believe is the 14th. So it'll run tomorrow. Exactly. It'll start tomorrow, the 14th. It'll run through Friday, the 17th, um, and we'll announce the winner on Saturday morning, the 18th. So you can walk into the weekend as a winner. I love walking into the weekend as a winner. (laughs) Seems the only time that happens is when I play the ATM and it knows my code. (laughs) There you go. You start using your codes. Whoever wins that will be able to, you know, they'll be able to circumvent last chance qualifier, the LCQ, and they will have a spot in the 4400 race on Friday with the big dogs. That's correct. So that should be exciting for them. If you didn't get the opportunity, now's your chance to kind of buy into it. The once in a lifetime opportunity. Killer, 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 killer. I love it. Thank you, Bart Dixon. Thank you for Jesse Combs Foundation for jumping at the opportunity and giving some lucky racers going to have quite an opportunity at this. So Vanessa, that all said, can you elaborate on some of the plans that you guys are starting to iron out and starting to 
put, I guess, color to and detail to about what Jesse Combs Foundation is going to use proceeds for? Absolutely. So a lot of people have been kind of questioning that and what's what's the plans? What do we plan to do with our proceeds? And what we're doing right now is we're actually putting together a list of different scholarships, grants, different sponsorships for female trailblazers. That was her big thing. So we want to make sure that there's girls that maybe can't afford to go to school. We want to make sure that we can help provide them with the funds. It'll still be an application process where, you know, you'll submit, you may submit an essay, you know, tell us why you, you know, that particular person deserves to to receive these funds. And we're going to help them achieve their goal. You know, Jesse didn't go racing to because she strictly wanted to become the fastest woman on earth because she was looking to be famous. She went out there because she wanted it to be a testament to girls that they could do anything that they set their minds to. So our goal is to help them achieve that goal. So by doing that, you know, whether that's scholarships, grants, helping provide them with sponsorships that they need for their vehicles or, you know, however, we don't want to limit them. So that doesn't mean if you, if they just want to be a racer, we're not only sponsoring racers, we're sponsoring, you know, racers, fabricators, you know, accountants, plumbers, whatever you're looking to do as a if you're a female looking to get into this, you know, offense male run world, we want to help you get there. That's our big thing. So those funds are actually being used for that purpose to help them achieve their goal. We're not trying to limit anybody. Our goal is to continue to empower women. And a lot of times that's by helping them achieve the education that they need so they can inspire the next generation of girls. I do love the message of the Jesse Combs Foundation. That's obviously why the Talent Tank has gotten behind you guys. And I really value your time and my time. And, and thank you for coming on today, Vanessa, and discussing a little bit about what you guys have going, what you guys are planning, and putting some detail and some color behind all those things. Vanessa, thank you. For sure. Thanks, Wyatt. I appreciate it. Have a good week, everyone. Back to our previously scheduled episode with Will Gentile. KOH 2020, your prep. There is a lot that you have, just like a guy that's prepping his race car, he's getting ready, he's figuring out logistics, strategy, and what it takes to get to Johnson Valley, what it takes to execute between the green and the checker, and then everything. His post is just loading up and going home. Your your work really starts after you go home. Tell me about everything that you are doing now to kind of get set up, and how many how many cameras are you going to deploy this year? Where are you deploying cameras, or teams that you're following or covering, or I don't know anything. Take me from zero to Will Hero. This will be a good opportunity to discuss how much it's changed for us because 2011 through 2016 was completely different than what we do now. So when we were doing the movie and all the official media for on that side of things, not the live coverage, but the, the film, we would have oh, the amount of prep was just immense, especially because I didn't know what the hell I was doing the first two times. <laughs> and uh, we used to bring out... 10 to 15 different cameras and camera operators that myself and Aaron Bryant of Turn 2 Productions would kind of assemble collectively. And I would direct and, and essentially decide how that all worked to some degree. And he would assist with communicating to his guys. It was a, it was a two-team deal. And leading up to that, there was Mark Matthews was a huge proponent and a, an asset to that because the first time I ever saw a desert or was in a desert in my whole life was my first day at King of the Hammers. And we got there at three in the morning in the dark. So the first time I ever saw a desert was when I opened Dave Smiley's RV door that morning and saw the desert. So needless to say, I didn't know anything about Johnson Valley at all. And Mark was the one that helped me bridge that gap and kind of figure things out because he knew everything there. And he was the guy that made, he's the guy for people that don't know that makes the map uh, and, you know, all that sort of stuff from the GPS file. And, or at least he used to, I'm not totally sure if he does now, but he would essentially work with me to build a sheet out that had, you know, camera one, camera two, camera three, 
and then separate locations that they would not only go to, but the next one they would move to and the time of day that they would move there based on the light or based on when we assume the leaders would be there. And, you know, without that sort of, I'm even, I'm even shortchanging it because there's so much more to it than just that little sheet. But without that, like, I would basically just be going out there and being like, okay, like, I guess go find cars and film them type thing. So, so as much as I was directing it, like Mark was right there with me and, and making sure that everything was dialed in. And of course, Dave too. Yeah, that was, that was a tiny piece of it. And then we had to figure out how many GoPros, where the GoPros were going on the cars, which cars they were going on, where those cars were based during the day, and you know when they were qualifying, when they were leaving the line after they had qualified. And all that had to be uh, set into a, a series of sheets, spreadsheets that Nicole would lay out. So that circles back to that whole storyline. And we would have we would eventually end up with a binder of where every racer was at any given moment and where the cameras were going on them, who was starting the cameras, starting positions, garage locations, camera operator locations, how much each camera operator was getting paid out of a total budget. The whole master list would come together in this binder that would come together in the first we probably started a little earlier than now, probably at the beginning of December is when the serious discussion began. Anything before that was just too early. We would spend the course of December and most of January figuring out those little details and, of course, all to just get tossed to the breeze <laughs> when, the, when the race comes like everybody knows. But it's good to have a baseline. So that's, that's a little look into the planning. Like I said, I think our max camera guys were probably 16 or 17. I'm not sure what year that was. On some level, you have a plan. But you also kind of rely on people who know what they're doing to I basically just tell my guys now, like, hey, I'm going to tell you to go to these spots. But if they're not working out, I trust you to figure out where to go, how to go, who to film like, you know what you're doing. So don't let me hold your hand or make you stick to a rigid plan that doesn't make sense, because what makes sense, you know, December 27th might not make sense on February 7th on race day. Let's figure it out together. If you guys think you have a better idea, I'd love to hear it, that sort of thing. But the planning is as much rigid as it is fluid. Just watching you talk about this, I can see the passion in your breath on on the whole project. Wow, that's um, that's all something to behold. I figured it was something easily like that, but it's uh, so much more uh, the detail level that you've you've got to get to. So after sixteen seventeen, how does that differ to to what you guys are doing for say twenty twenty? So when we talked to Dave and I eventually, Dave and I collectively decided to stop the movie because, you know, DVD's old and the format's gone away because they have a television show now that someone else does. Uh, we leaned completely into doing commercial work at the event, which we did a little bit of before. Uh, now that's our sole goal is work with our clients at King of the Hammers and, you know, build recap videos, build advertisements, that sort of thing. So now we go out there with a much more slimmed down specialized team that, we spend more of the week going on specialized shoots than we do doing general race coverage, which is exactly the reciprocal of how it was previously. So, for example, on Monday, we may be out doing a, a video shoot for Nitto. Or, you know, when I say for Nitto, I mean just going out with a Nitto driver or two, like an Eric or a Lauren. Jason Blanton, we spend a lot of time out there with. And we'll get like, we essentially dedicate time to getting shots of racers in a controlled environment that we wouldn't be able to do during the race because you're kind of just at the mercy of whatever happens. And maybe you won't see that person at all that day. So we'll do that on a Monday. And then a Tuesday, we'll do an Optimum Batteries campaign that we have, you know, planned. And then it, it's essentially our week is just we'll have a, normally one or two shoots every single day throughout the whole week with maybe one day dedicated to just location planning or honestly just giving us a time to hang out and enjoy King of the Hammers. I try to I try to give everyone that time just because I want that time as well because we don't get that very often. But it's cool to just be able to do that now, whereas in the past that just wasn't even on the radar. 
And your customer list, your client list, so to speak, your client list is, I mean, it's the who's who. It's, you know, Fox, it's Warren, it's Optima Batteries, it's ARB, you mentioned Nitto, it's uh, Transamerican Parts, which is 4.0 Parts Wholesalers. You've got Maxis in there, Maxis, you do work for them. And then on top of that, Ultra 4. Yeah, I hate to say that that's anything but luck. Like, obviously, there's a little talent in there. But I mean, we I was so lucky to start my company at the same time that Kwitch was starting to gain ground in the way that I almost defaulted to be the guy to use for no other reason other than I was the guy there. So we were able to work with Nitto, which was my first big major regular client. And I have to thank Tim Colty for that, who who was there. He was there prior to Chris Corbett. And uh, Tim just, I was working on something for Dave, for Nitto, where we had to like supply them footage from the movie for like a Nitto ad that they were making. And I was just like, just in passing to Tim, I was like, hey, if you guys ever need anything, you know, feel free to let me know, like through Dave or whatever it may be. Like, I'm happy to help your company because you guys make a, at the time, the trail grappler was pretty new and that seemed like a pretty sweet tire and that they were going to lean in pretty hard to KOH. And Tim took a chance and he was like, yeah, man, how would you like to do like a recap video? And I was like, I was like, absolutely, 100%. Like, this is a major tire manufacturer that I can get my foot in the door with. And that'd be huge for my company. And it ended up being huge. Tim used us for a lot of stuff. Our first Nitto video was at Roush Creek, like most things. And I remember filming Derek West. He was the only participant there on Nitto's. We did a recap video there. And then I think we did that whole season for them. And then we did the next season and then we did the next season. And then unfortunately, Tim Culty ended up leaving the company for another job. Chris took over and we just picked up where we left off. And I've worked with Nitto since. It's probably been seven or eight years now that we've done Nitto's, uh, you know, rock sports media. So that was that was a great start for us. And we used King of the Hammers and Nitto and all that to just leapfrog into all our other clients and like you mentioned, there's some of the bigger companies, the King of the Hammers and, you know, the title sponsor, the presenting sponsor, some of the other bigger legacy brands. So it's been good. No, it absolutely has been good. And it's really cool to see you. You mentioned how it's helped your business grow and your business has effectively hitched your wagon to the stars and they, they pulled you along. But from my perspective, it's really cool to hear the backstory on where you came from, how you came to be and how, where and how that's propelled you into uh, stardom today. Because like I said, a lot of people know who Will Gentile is. They've heard your name. It's synonymous with Ultra 4 uh, movies, media coverage, not necessarily the live show, but a lot of a lot of that work. But we didn't know who exactly Will Gentile was as a person. You know, I, I knew you I knew your brain behind the business, uh, just following your social media. But does that does that cover kind of your KOH walk in the jungle? Because when you when 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 you guys leave Hammers Week, does the work really just start to begin as you start to dig through? It's not so bad because, I mean, yeah, there's there's an immense amount of work once you leave. Like shooting is fun. And I love shooting and, and it's a lot of logistical challenge, but we're so dialed into what we normally do that all that comes so naturally during the week that we just kind of do it. And, and every year I'm worried that, you know, maybe we won't get that key shot or maybe we won't. But every year it just happens to work out that way that we, we are able to get everything done. So then the real, like you mentioned, the real work is when you get home because now you have to like take that however many hours, you know, back in the day it was hundreds. Now it's not quite that much, but the data intake is so much more now because our cameras are so much more advanced and, and you know, we're shooting everything in 4K and uh, figuring out how to take 
less footage and do more with it is an interesting challenge, you know, but we're able to do that. And because we're so familiar with everything now and all my guys have been, they've been going for years with me. So everyone, you know, as much as I know it, they know it as well as I do. So we're all working cohesively. We're getting the exact shots we need of the exact people. Everyone's familiar with the race car drivers and who's going to be where. And that kind of alleviates a lot of the stress later on in the studio because I, I go to my footage dump and I, I, I'm lucky to have a photographic memory, so I don't catalog anything, but I remember who shot what and where. And, and to some degree, I can still remember years from now, like I'll need to do like when I did KOH Origins, I had to go back and get a bunch of archival footage. And I still retain a lot of that information where it's like, you know, Derek West did this thing here. And I remember Eric in 2014 did this role on this thing and I can pull it. So I'm lucky in the sense that I can remember stuff in that way. And I'm a very fast editor. So it, it works out where it's not so bad, but it's not easy. I don't want to undersell it too hard, oh, man, but you're hired. You're hired. You can do my job. <laughs> At the same time, I'm just pitching everyone like, yeah, man, I'm so good. But it's 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 really just we're so familiar with it that it almost comes naturally to all of us now. Well, before we got the cameras kind of rolling and re started recording on this one, you and I were having a, the dialogue about the uh, sharing the perils of editing. And I'm a total neophyte at this, you know, total rookie. But I absolutely hate it. And I'm not fast at it. And what I've learned is and it's given me a very huge newfound respect for what you do and the guys like you and how you do it is the editing out of the the ums and the coughs and the crutch words and the breaths and the over and over and over. And then I sit there, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, and I'm only editing call it an hour and a half or two hours of of audio and I'll have 10,000 edits. It's like yeah. not hard to get to 10,000. Audio is a huge part of my job and I'm and I'm not an audio guy. So admittedly, I'm not a talented audio person. That's why you get a specific person for that. But in the editing process, there is no better feeling on earth than when you get a good interview that just flows. There's proper pauses. There's proper, you know, they just say a sentence without all the crutch words, which we're all uh, like I'm doing right now. Uh, you know, we're all guilty of that, right? Oh, yeah. So when it's not there, it's the easiest thing in the world, but it's almost always there. So almost half of my job is cutting sentences, making new sentences out of sentences that didn't exist, but still make sense, matching inflection and sentences. And it's it's a lot of work to edit interviews in that way. And I think a lot of people, the idea is that no one knows that. If no one notices anything in your edit, you know you've done a good job, which is kind of painful. But at the same time, like if no one mentions it, perfect. That has been a problem I, I, I have. And it's the just like prepping a race car, there's thousands of hours that go into prepping that thing before you show up at the race that nobody sees, nobody knows. They just see when it lines up for the green. There's a lot of parallels in, in race teams and what we do. I've found that over the years in doing all those interviews, like all the things that people mention and talk about, I can relate to not necessarily from a physical standpoint of working on a car. Granted, I'm familiar with that, but what we do perfectly lines up with what they do. All this work and all this prep comes down to just one day where you either get it or you don't because you don't get to redo it again and you go home with whatever you got and that's the end of it. Granted, we do more when we go home. There's just a lot tied up in one moment and that's kind of the same thing. No, spot on, spot on. So what do we have for you for 2020 after KOH? What kind of goals does Will Gentile have in his on his bucket list or checklist of what you'd like to accomplish 2020 going forward? I think for us, the most important thing would be to continue doing what we're doing, but just 
scale, you know, scale like we've been doing and and let it be natural. Don't try to take any huge leaps that, that don't make sense. But I think what we've been up to this point has been what amounts to a production company, right, which is what an ad agency or a client will go direct to to hire to do specifically video production only. You show up, you film, maybe you do the edit. Granted, we do almost all of our editing, but generally you're just involved in filming. Probably how we'll structure from now on, we'll still be doing that sort of work. That's our primary company. More of a creative boutique, which amounts to more creative direction or more project planning or essentially what comes down to brainstorming with the client or creating jobs or creating stories. We do a lot of that now when we work direct with some of our clients. That's normally the job of an ad agency, which is what I'm not. We're looking to kind of vend that together where we're a little bit of an ad agency, but a little bit of a production company, but touching all the bases, but not necessarily being siloed in one deal. Well, it sounds like you're taking your subject matter expertness, the, the SME that is heavy metal concepts and building ad campaigns, which, like you said, would come out of, normally come out of an ad agency, but they're not necessarily grounded in the reality of what can be accomplished and what can't be accomplished. So you're there to make that reality check or and come up with the ideas. And a lot of ad agencies, you know, you're able to pull off things that they would never dream could be pulled off. You imagine somebody sitting in a conference room, in a boardroom, pitching, we're going to take Lauren Healy and have him jump down Potato Salad Hill. Right. Uh, what makes you think Lauren would do that? That sounds, you know, <laughs> and you're sitting there. Well, we've been so fine tuned to the automotive aftermarket and off road that we've gotten ad agency jobs, a lot of them with big agencies. And it ends up having me being the consultant to the agency on getting the job done in a lot of senses, because I know the people we've done it a thousand times already. It's just easier to just like, granted, these are smart people and they know they, they're very good at their job. And, and, you know, I'm thankful that they're there. But at the same time, a lot of the responsibility transfers to me where it normally wouldn't. So it's probably smart to take my company in a way that capitalizes on that upfront, where it's like, hey, we're not going to replace your ad agency, but we can be the middle ground there where we're not just a production company that your agency has to talk to. We can work with your agency, but we can also turnkey different projects that, you know, maybe they couldn't or maybe they would need more of our help on. That's kind of my goal. I don't want to I have no delusions of being an ad agency because that's not my world. I'm not that person. Kind of a more specialized production company, I guess, would be a good way to put it. I can help with your content. <laughs> yes, right. 100%. I, I can help you reach out, right? No, I, I love it. All right, Will. So as we're kind of drawn to the close here, I still have some bullets on my list that I really want to get answers to and knock out. I've got down in my notes, I want to talk to you about Origins. I want to talk to you about some of the projects you busted out this past year. And I know you have some big news coming out as well as I know it's not just you. It's not just Nicole. It's just not Scott. You've got a you have a fleet. You have a huge friend list. You have a f- huge group of support network. You have a huge group of guys that, and ladies that, that work for you. Let's let's kind of wrap that and give the viewer, <laughs> sorry, give the listener uh, the the full package before we put a bow on it and uh, and ship it. Sure. Yeah. So uh, KOH Origins. That was that was something that came from us no longer doing the movie and me having some extra time KOH related work to do. And I figured. I'm always describing KOH to people, like trying to explain it. And there's a million videos out there that say what KOH is, but it's the video is not about that. It's always just shoehorned into a video about, you know, whether it be a product or a racer or something where you can't just absorb this is what KOH is and why and how and all that stuff. It just didn't exist. 
So I figured this is a great opportunity for me to be able to tell the history of King of the Hammers uh, through my own lens and through the lens of all the people that actually were there and know the whole story behind it. Because I know a lot, but I don't know everything. That gave me the opportunity to make a long-form piece of content. The first episode was over 30 minutes and interview people like John Reynolds, who won the first real King of the Hammers, which was 2007. And, you know, of course, we talked to Dave and, you know, we talked to all the original people and kind of got all these little, you know, nuggets of information that a lot of people didn't know that I didn't know that I was able to put it in a package that told the story of King of the Hammers and that you could just send to someone and say, here's a link. This is this whole story. King of the Hammers Watch as little of it or as much of it as you want. And that was a perfect example of me wanting to do something and having no idea if anyone cared or would watch it or anything. And I just put an absolute immense amount of time and effort into this potential risk realistically, I'm just risking my time. But I was able to get sponsors on board for that and, you know, put out a 30 minute piece. And I think today it's up to about uh, on YouTube, I think it's 300,000 views. And on Facebook, it was over a million. So to say that was a payoff is unbelievable. It's a glorious piece of work. Thank you. An absolutely amazing piece of work. You've killed it. And I think there's a lot of value in, well, as the talent tank uh, has come to fruition, there's a, an immense amount of interest in what the backstory is, what the inside story is. I mean, total insider info. And people are somewhat insatiable about that information. They're, you know, they can't, they apparently can't get enough of it. And there's, yeah. and we're constantly building new stories. Every single day is a new story. Right. Yeah. It, 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 of course, helped that I had all the archival footage from doing all those years of King of the Hammers, which, again, is another strength that we had was we were lucky enough to be there from not quite the start, but early enough where we had a bunch of meaningful footage from over the years. And Dave was you know, nice enough to grant me use of that to make this product. Granted, it's helping his brand, but it's helping mine as well. And we were able to take, uh, I think it was eight years of content from over the years and, and put it in that 30 minutes and, and to have that many people watch it and seeing comments where people that didn't even know what KOH was were watching it through and being like, man, I got to go out to this race or, you know, I didn't even, never even heard of this. And now I want to go to California and see it. That's so cool to have been able to create that and tell that story and have people actually respond in a way that meant something. Massively rewarding, just massively rewarding. As rewarding as it gets for someone like me, because it's 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 half about money, obviously, because you got to make a living. But as the creative, it's like just having people respond is worth so much. And your team, you know, we, I kind of touched on it. You have quite the team. Yeah. So in the early years, uh, I say early years like it was 100 years ago, but really 10 years ago and, and similar, it was a lot of the guys from my off-road club who were not camera guys. They weren't. They were just friends that wanted to go to KOH. And they went to KOH and they dedicated their time to helping me film. Like as, as you know, a guy with a handy cam at back door where we needed to plug a hole and have someone or, you know, someone just out in this desert section or just someone to haul a tripod or help me drive somewhere. It's just all those little bits and pieces of people that you meet along the years does so much in providing the success we've been able to see. It's hard to even describe. Like as much as it's my team, it's also the friends and family that came out and helped along the way and, and plugged all those little holes that you would otherwise just have to let leak. You know, that was all my club SIS off road. I'm sure some of those guys will at least hear this, but a lot of them were were necessary for that. But my core group of guys, uh, Spencer, who's my drone op and Zach Youngberg, he's shot with me for a few years. Zach Crosby has been there since pretty much the start. He shot at Roush Creek with me and uh, Jeff Lowe used to shoot with us. He was a big cog in the whole machine. So, yeah, I mean, it, without all those guys, like we'd be a lot smaller and a lot less done. And a lot less well known. Yes. 
<laughs> but you you busted out a couple of really big projects this year that really haven't come, become public yet. And I know you have some unveilings that are coming here in the near term. You want to elaborate on them? Sure. Right now it's not public, but I'm sure by the time this goes live, it will be. Um, I'm local to Colt Firearms. And like I said, I was raised on firearms with my father. He's a Colt guy. It's it's a whole thing for us. And I was at the AUSA show four years ago, which is the Army's SEMA, basically. And I approached Colt, just 100% Colt. Just, I was like, I'm here, they're here. I'll just go talk to them, whatever. And I was like, do you guys need video? And they were like, we actually do. You're right on time. Like, we've been looking for a guy. Here you are. Like, great. So I figured, all right, cool. Hole in one. Let's do this. That was four years ago. That guy I talked to there quit. And then he connected me to someone else. That guy quit. Connected me to somewhere else. Like, every year I would check in once or twice a year, just persistent like that, but not over the top. And then eventually this year in January, I reached out again after someone else left the company. And I was like, hey, you know, I, I, I was looking to follow up on this job we were looking to do. And she was like, perfect. Your timing is great. And uh, again, four years later, yeah, I've heard this before. <laughs> I was like, okay, maybe this year the timing will be right. So it turns out that Colt after, I believe it's 20 years now, maybe a little bit longer than that, is bringing back the Colt Python, which people have just been losing their marbles about. Just essentially, if you go on Colt's social media or anywhere on the internet, people are like, why don't you bring back the Python? Like the Python, for people that don't know, is a legendary revolver. It's like Colt's gun. And they stopped making it in, in the late 90s. You could argue early 2000s, depending. But they're bringing it back. And Colt has trusted Heavy Metal Concepts to do the whole project. We went to a meeting with their agency. And they chose us to, I say us, this was actually, I actually ended up doing this project by myself because it was local. And all my guys that I mentioned earlier are based out west. We are tasked with the relaunch and introduction of the Colt Python to the public on television. We did their 30-second ads, and then also we did a brand video for them that just encompasses the whole company that's going to release, I believe, on the 1st of January, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, that was that was really exciting for me because just growing up with my dad and being a cult guy and, you know, seeing that brand for my whole life and then being the guy for them to rely on to bring back this legendary, you know, firearm that everyone's heard of is it's pretty cool, especially when you go on the Internet and you read all these articles about, you know, there's the guys that are like, why cult will never bring back the Python. And like, I just have one here in my office that they've made that they've brought back. That's a great feeling. So, you know, I. I say I did that by myself, but uh, a longtime friend of mine, Phil, he owns a gun or he doesn't own, but he works at a gunsmith shop here and he's a gunsmith by trade. He uh, without him, I probably wouldn't be able to accomplish this the way I did. He was a huge asset and we used him as the FFL to get the firearms and and Rob Huxley and Mike Ronaldo and uh, Ryan Lavelle was there for it. He's also a longtime friend. You know, again, it goes back to having friends and, and not necessarily camera professionals, but people that can just, you know, whether I need someone to hold this for a shot or drive this car for this other shot, stuff like that is so huge and doesn't really get the attention at the end product that it that it needs because literally without those people like I would just be filming guns sitting on the ground or or you know having to expend huge amounts of money to hire people to do what amounts to mundane tasks where whereas my friends will just do it because they're my friends and it helps that they also like guns but right <laughs> but yeah stuff like that makes me so proud because like one of the biggest payoffs for me in my work is to you know tell the story and and work with brands that I've either used used or looked up to as a kid or, or growing up or even now, like bigger brands that are just cool. It's nice to work with them and be trusted with their their message. To harken back to words that Lauren Haley had said to me in the past was 
he struggled to get outside the industry. And he was speaking about it from a sponsor standpoint, which also you could say that is a client standpoint as well. It's very cool for me to see you and see that by getting Colt and landing Colt, you were able to break outside of the industry. And yes. when you're able to take your, your body work, your portfolio work, and use that from the motorsport genre and leverage that into outside the industry, man, congrats, kudos. That's, that's awesome. I can't wait to see some of these videos drop. Yeah, it was, it was, it's always a hard sell going to a client being like, hey, I have nothing that's any relation to you whatsoever as far as look, but I think we could probably do it. That's a hard sell because strangely enough, what, what actually helped me get this job the most was we did some spec ads for Ram trucks. And a lot of that was like a real blue collar feel and, you know, guys with sledgehammers and, and, you know, working at construction sites. And that happened to work out that Colt, kind of aligned with that whole heritage and blue collar feel. And I was able to play them a Ram spec ad at the agency meeting and they were like, boom, that's that's exactly what we're looking for. Like, yeah, it's cars, but we can see the, uh, you know, the crossover there. So it, it's so much, it's so important to be able to tell a story that's not just literally, here's a car driving around or here's a gun being fired. Like there's so much more around that that you can kind of pull in and, and then you can use that sort of thing to go after people not necessarily that are that exact discipline. And this kind of circles back to what we talked about about an hour and a half ago about patriotism, the Second Amendment, gun sanctuaries. <laughs> it's uh, it's very right. cool to see that you've gotten involved. Yeah, awesome, awesome. I like to think that my company is just what I would do if I was a five-year-old with a lot of money, just guns and planes and cars and race cars and just all craziness. Here we are, Will. I think we've, we're have we at the conclusion of an amazing session. Did I miss anything? I don't think so. I'm feeling pretty good about it. I'm glad you didn't accept my first invite to be on the show, that we waited until I had some shows under my belt. I'd honed my craft a little bit, honed my skills kind of, I don't know, if uh, patting my own back here, um, <laughs> that landed you. I mean, for me, to get Will Gentile on the show was a, a huge get, and so thank you. Being able to tell your story, who the guy is behind the camera, who the guy is behind these ideas that we've all consumed. We've consumed so many of your products and not known who, who the mastermind was behind it. Thank you for sitting down with me. I appreciate of it. Of course. And that's that's all kind of by design in the sense, like I didn't come on this show because I didn't trust the show. I come on the show because I'm always behind the lens, right? So this is... Uh, I haven't done many of these, so this is a first for me. Talking about yourself and being on that side, no, absolutely. I, right. I, I've been asked to be interviewed myself a couple times lately, and I'm like, I don't what, no. <laughs> <laughs> yep. No, I no. So I fully get it. Well, Will, thank you again. Thank you for sitting down with me. I think uh, my listeners will definitely approve of uh, what you had to say today and walking this through your life, man. Badass. I will see you in February. See you on the lake bed, as many of us will. Thank you. Thanks for why. Appreciate coming on. All right. We'll catch you later. Take care. I'd like to thank the sponsor of this episode, the Jesse Combs Foundation. For more information about their organization, please visit their website at www.thejessecombsfoundation.com. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into The Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at The Talent Tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.